Good morning, everyone. Good to be here. Um, as Colin said this morning, so we're taking on the pause at the moment. We're going through uh, the Gospel of John, uh, working from cover to cover, but we're just uh, pausing and we're going through a mini series looking at our church's vision statement. And we just thought it'd be useful just to look at these. Helps if I turn it on, Colin says. Just thought it would be useful for us to look at these and uh, just as a church, just to remind us uh, who we are, what we believe, and what, why we do church. Uh, so last week, um, Dan started the series looking at uh, the third and the fourth statements. And the reason for that is just our relationship with our sister church at Hillview. Uh, that Dan would preach previously um, on that Hillview and then has come, come back to preach to us um, on uh, statement three and four here. So I'm actually starting at the top and starting with statement one and statement two. So the first statement uh, we're looking at is that we are a biblical church, and I'm going to expand on this in a minute and share the actual vision statement. And the second statement we're looking at is that we are a church that worships. And I have to apologize because really to do these two topics justice. I should be preaching a sermon series on each of them. So this is just going to be a real fast work through, um, just really highlighting the important points of why we are a biblical, biblical church and why we are a church that worships. So it's no doubt there's a reason why the first statement that we have as a business statement is that we are a church that is biblical. So I'm just going to read this out to you. So we are a church that's biblical. We will teach the Bible with integrity, passion, and humility, and it will be our guide in everything we do. We will love the scriptures, finding different ways for all different ages to understand the glorious depths of God's word. So we, we need to ask, this, ask ourselves a question. Why is it important that we are a church that is biblical? What does this mean? So, just to start off with, we're just, I'm just going to look at the business statement in more detail, look at some of the words there in more detail. So, you can see here it says that we will teach the Bible with integrity, passion, and humility. So, just looking at the word integrity, um, it's good to define that word. And we're, we're looking at the biblical definition of integrity. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is translated into integrity. It means the condition of being without blemish, completeness perfection, sincerity, soundness, uprightness, and wholeness. So let's just hold on to this definition, especially the word wholeness. The Latin word that the English word derived from is integritas, and that word means intact or whole. And then the next word is passion. So we are, we will teach the Bible with passion, or in other words, with emotion. And our passions show where our hearts lie. Our hearts' desires should be to read and absorb God's word. We will teach the Bible with humility, being humble, respecting the author of the Bible, that the author of the Bible is far greater than us. And it will be our guide in everything we do, which I'll touch on later. We will love the scriptures, finding different ways for all different ages to understand the glorious depths, and this is a great term, the glorious depths of God's word. Um, depth is an important word. There's so much depth and so much detail in the Bible. But the glorious truth behind this depth is that there is an overriding story that binds the whole thing together. From the first page to the last, 
from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Everything is there to tell us the love story of a God who loves us and saves us from sin and death in the form of Jesus. He took the punishment for each one of us personally. And everything we read in the Bible always either directly or indirectly points us towards this message. And that's the glorious depth of God's word, which our business statement talks about here. And you'll know from reading the Bible that as you read the same Bible passage one day, it maybe doesn't have much direct meaning to our lives. But then another day we read it, and it can jump out of the page and change the entire way that we are thinking of, or act, or decide about something. <coughs> so, what is the Bible? Well, just to simplify it, the Bible is a collection or it's a library of books that were brought together. But the Bible is the written word of God. And I just want to share this quote with you. I mean, it's just a really great quote, just summing up what the Bible is. Um, it's, it's by Max Lusardo, who's an American pastor. And he says, the purpose of the Bible, salvation, full stop. God's highest passion is to get his children home. His book, the Bible, describes his plan of salvation. The purpose of the Bible is to proclaim God's plan and passion to save his children. So the Bible's got loads of stories in the Bible, loads of depth in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, but ultimately the Bible's doing one thing. It's pointing towards our need for a saviour. And the Old Testament is demonstrating our repeated failures and our inability to make the great. And that no works can save us. And then the New Testament is showing us how God saved us from this inability to make the great through Jesus. God in the form of man. Taking the punishment for us. And that's his plan of salvation that this huge library of books is pointing towards in everything that it says. So, why should we believe the Bible? And why should we follow what this vision statement proclaims the Bible is about? So, the first thing to say is that all the words in the Bible are God's words. And just to back this up, there's a few scriptures. In, in Timothy chapter 3, 16, Paul says, All scripture is God-breathed, and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And I just want to focus on this word, breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. And the Greek word behind our English word is theonustos. And new stuff, P-N-E-U, just something that interests me is that it reminds me of pneumatic tyre, or the French word for tyre, you know, which is obviously filled with air. I don't know Greek, but I kind of got from that 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 word means air. So um, this, the whole word means breathe, but if we expand the actual meaning, the, the depth of the meaning of the words, um, it can mean breathed out, or inspired by, or due to the inspiration of. And the word breathe is often used in the Bible to demonstrate the power of God. God breathed the breath of life into Adam, Genesis 2, 7. Jesus breathed on his disciples when he received the Holy Spirit, John chapter 20, verse 20. So the word breathe is associated with the powerful inspiration of God on people. What Paul means in this passage is that although God used human agents to write the words down, God is the one who spoke and still speaks through the words. 
2 Peter chapter 1, 21 says that none of the prophecies came about by the impulse of man, but by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And there are many other passages that can be cited, but the pattern of attributing to God the words of the Bible are very clear. Okay, so the Bible claims to be the word of God, but how can we be convinced that those claims are true? Well, it's quite simply, we can't do it alone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So as we read the Bible through, with the Holy Spirit working in us, we hear God's voice speaking and realise that the words are indeed God's own words speaking to our hearts. Sometimes passages don't make sense or they're challenging to believe. But something that's truly amazing is that when we become believers, God sends us a helper in the form of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things the Spirit helps us with is understanding and fully absorbing the truth in God's Word. So it can be as if scales fall from our eyes and we no longer see the words as interesting facts to choose or drop, but we will see the glory of God in and through these words. And in this passage in Corinthians, effectively Paul is saying that he, said that he knows he's not the one who makes it possible for anyone to believe. He knows that God must reveal the truth through his spirit to each person who will believe. Paul's job is simply to use words to help those who believe, or who will believe, to understand what cannot be known by human wisdom alone. So, we need the revelation of the Holy Spirit to fully believe and fully understand God's words. Being mere humans is not enough. So, the next question is, just because they are God's words, why are they true and why should we believe them? So to understand the answer to this, we need to understand the truthfulness of God's words. And there are a number of passages talking about this. In Titus chapter 1, verse 2, Paul speaks of the God who never lies. Or if we translate it more literally, the unlying God. And because God cannot lie, his words, and hence the Bible, are always true. And Proverbs 35 says, every word of God proves true. So not just some of the Bible, uh, words of the Bible are true, but every word of the Bible is true. Okay, so if we accept the fact that the Bible is the word of God, and that the words are true, how do we apply this to our own lives, and how do we apply this to how we do church? Well, as the church's vision statement says, it will be our guide in everything we do. So, the Bible should be our guide in how we worship, and I'm going to expand on that soon in the next section, but the Bible should be our guide in how we worship, what words we sing, how we come to a time of worship as individuals. The Bible should be a guide in teaching, what we teach up here, what the children's church teachers are teaching children right now, what we teach when we disciple each other as individuals, it should all be based on the Bible. The Bible should be our guide in how we do outreach, when we do outreach, how we do outreach, how we reach those who we're doing outreach to, 
what we say to the people who we do outreach to, how we care and show Jesus' love to those we do outreach to. The Bible should be our guide in how we do fellowship, how we care, how we love, how we support one, one another. Colin mentioned small groups, and this is a great way of showing, um, of caring, loving, and supporting um, one another in fellowship. The Bible should be our guide in how we do communion, and Jesus taught us a clear pattern on how and why to do communion, and later Paul, Paul back that up. The Bible should be our guide on baptism, how we do baptism, why we do baptism. But the Bible should be our guide on how we live our lives. The Bible should be our guide on what we do with our time. The Bible should be our guide on what we spend our money on. The Bible should be our guide on where and how we give our money. The Bible should be our guide on how we act and behave around people. The Bible should be our guide on how we honour God in our lives. The Bible should be our guide on how we aim to always do our best for Him in our work and our school lives, and I could go on. But the Bible should be our guide in everything we do. And the vision statement also mentions that we should teach with integrity, which we defined as wholeness. And this is an important statement that I want to briefly cover. This is one of the reasons that we're currently, other than this pause, covering the whole book of John from cover to cover. By this statement, we mean that we should teach the whole Bible. Nothing should be missed out. Nothing should be skipped over. If it's truly the Word of God, we cannot filter out words, verses, or passages that we are concerned will offend or be contrary to public opinion. And Paul teaches us in 2 Timothy chapter 1.14, he says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, that we must guard the good deposit entrusted to us. In other words, we must protect God's word. It's sacred. It's the word of God. People will try to change it. People will try to dilute it. People will try to alter it to suit the changing world we live in. But it's our duty as Bible-believing Christians to stand up for the truth. God has trusted us to protect the Bible. We are trusted with guarding it. But thankfully, we are not alone in this quest. As Paul mentions in this verse, he says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So it's the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, helps us in this task. But public opinion is always changing, but God does not. He's the same today as he was when he created the earth. Therefore his truth must not change. Therefore his word does not change. Therefore his, the Bible does not change. Therefore, we must teach the Bible as a whole, word by word. The words we speak in teaching, they must all be biblical. What we say up here must be able to be tested by the word of God. So when we hear people speaking, especially when we're looking for sermons or podcasts to listen on online, I love listening to sermons and podcasts online, but when we listen to these, we'll come across somebody new we haven't come across before, we must continually ask ourselves, are they speaking the word of God? Is what they are saying biblical? Can it be backed up by God's word? If what they're saying is contrary to the word of God, they are not speaking the truth. And it's the same when we choose a church. We need to initially ask ourselves this question when we're checking out if the church is right for us. Are they speaking from the Bible? So as well as being a church that is biblical, I've also been asked to cover the second vision statement. And this is that we see a church of authentic worshippers. 
we will declare the greatness of God. We will not be lukewarm in our prayers. We will sing passionately, pray earnestly, listen attentively, and surrender ourselves regularly. Worship will be a 24-7 reality. And we will look forward to Sunday gatherings with great joy and expectation. When we look at life, it's clear that we are designed to worship. We just have to look at the celebrity culture that we live in today. People literally become obsessed with celebrities, put them on pedestals and dedicating their lives to them. Lionel Messi is compared to a deity in Argentina, and apparently there's even a church that's opened in his name. I've got a picture here, and it's really wonderfully rendered on this projector, so you can all see it clearly here. Um, hopefully what you can see there is hands being held up. And of course, you'll be forgiven to think this is a Matt Redmond worship concert event of some sort. You know, people singing with their eyes closed, with their arms lifted up. But this is a picture of people in a nightclub. And it's clear from pictures like this that we are designed to worship. These people are looking to worship something. In Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, if you've not read it, read it. I urge you to read it. It's one of the best books I've ever read. Tim Keller talks about many gods in our lives that we worship, which take us away from the true thing we are designed to worship, of course, which is God. He talks about the empty promises of money, sex, power, even normal day-to-day -day things can become things that we worship. Our phones, our family, our careers, things that take our time and focus away from God. So, First question is, why should we worship God alone? Well, Paul said in Romans 12, chapter 1, he said, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, why is the question? Well, Paul starts his statement with, therefore. So to fully understand this statement, we need to look at the statement in Romans 11 to put it into context. And in the final verse of Romans 11, Paul says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. In other words, we and everything around us is from him, through him and to him. So everything is here because of him. And in, in Romans 12, 1, he said, he also says, he tells us, because of God's mercies. So because he's given us what we do not deserve, that's why he should be the object of our worship. And interestingly, the things of the world that distract us from worshipping who we are, they're all designed, uh, uh, sorry, the things that distract us from worshipping who we are designed to worship, they are all here because of him. Because everything is here because of him. So the next question is how should we worship? Well, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verses 18 to 24, when we come into his presence, the proper response is to offer to God acceptable 
Or if we look at the definition of the Hebrew word, we could say, in an acceptable manner, worship. With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So our hearts should be outpouring in response to the realisation of who God is when we are in his presence. Back to Romans 12 verse 1, we are told that we must present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. And to offer a sacrifice means to offer everything. So we must come to him in worship with everything we are, both body and spirit. And then he goes on to say in verse 2 that we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In other words, we must replace the world's wisdom with the true God-given wisdom. Our minds must be shaped by the truth of God's word as we come to him in worship. In John chapter 4, verses 23 to 24, Jesus said, But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So our worship has to be based on the truth of who God is, on the character of God. But but we also have to respond to who God is in our own spirit. So when we come to a time of worship, we have to come in full. We have to leave everything behind and give our all to him in worship. We must come to him in worship in thought, having the knowledge of the truth of who he is. We must come to worship in spiritual emotion, being in God's, having God's spirit as our, in ourselves. And we must come to God in worship to make space for revelation and response. And that's why it's really important to spend time before worship, and we call it the call to worship, to see God for who he is, and to lead us to respond in acceptable worship for who he is in his presence. I've got a really great quote coming up here. I love this quote. Um, This is a quote by Matt Redman from his book, um, Unquenchable Worshipper, Coming Back to the Heart of Worship. And it really speaks of how we should come before God in worship. So Matt Redman said, So often when my worship has dried up, it's because I haven't been fueling the fire. I haven't set aside any time to soak myself under the showers of God's revelation. Often, time is a key factor. But if we can find space to soak ourselves in God's word, soak ourselves in his presence, soak ourselves in his creation, and spend time with other believers, then we'll find that the revelation floods back into our lives, and our hearts will respond with a blaze of worship once more. So, when you come to worship, if you find yourself... If you find that the worship's dried up, if you find that it's not exciting you anymore, just ask yourself, how much time are you spending soaking up God's word? How much time are you spending in his presence? How much time are you spending looking at the beauty of his creation? And I often say that where we live in the world, we just have to drive along the road and we can see the beauty of his creation. How much time are we spending with other believers? You know, work on those. And as Matt Redman says here, the revelation floods back into our lives and our hearts respond with a blaze of worship once more. So, now when we think of the word worship, we often think of times when we stand 
here in church on a Sunday, or we are a worship event singing praises to God. And of course, these are hugely significant parts of our worship life. And there's something amazing about those times when we have special moments of 100% focus on God as a gathered community. Those moments when we find ourselves soaked up in the moment, tears in our eyes, clearly in the presence of God. But that's just one way that worship expresses itself. True worship happens when our entire life becomes a declaration of faith in God's incredible mercy. Paul said, eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So our lives should be undertaken as acts of worship for the glory of God. So of course we worship at church. We worship God at church and singing. We worship God at taking up our offering. We worship God at taking communion together. We worship God by praying together. But we should be undertaking acts of worship in the way we live out our day-to-day lives. We should be worshiping God in acts of worship by fellowship with other believers, by fellowship with non-believers, getting to know our neighbours, our friends and our colleagues, inviting them around for dinner, seeking their needs, looking for how can we care for them, how can we love them, and through that, how can we show them Jesus' love? Who do you know who lives near you? You sort of know, but you don't know them well enough to be praying for them. Let's challenge each other this morning to invite these people God's put in our lives around to dinner. Let's challenge each other to get to know these people. See, how can we be praying for them? How can we love them? How can we build a trusting relationship with them? How can we take the time over it? You know, we have to be in it for the long run. How can we eventually invite them to something? Introduce them to Jesus. This is how we can lead our communities to Jesus. Every one of us working away at those God has put into our lives. Leading them to the truth, to the good news. Do it for the glory of God. And it's a highly effective act of worship. But of course, it's not easy to do this. And I'm preaching as much to myself. But with God and the help of his Holy Spirit, he can reveal people to us in our lives who he's put there for a reason. He's put there for us to spend time with him and ultimately lead them to Jesus. How are we spending our spare time? What are we watching on TV? What are we reading? What are we thinking about? Are these things that we're doing glorifying God? Are they acts of worship? How do we spend our money? How and why do we rescue our careers? How hard are we working at school? I could go on. How are we giving? Where are we giving? God's given us our resources to give back to others. Are we, are we giving enough? Is God challenging us to give more? Are we listening attentively? Are we listening to what God is saying to us in our lives? Are we spending time seeking God's guidance in our lives? That's also an act of worship. His ways are higher than our ways. And by asking his help is us recognising and humbling ourselves before him. Another form of worship. Are we praying earnestly? Prayer is communication with God. Deepening our relationship. Praying continuously means spending time with God. This too is an act of worship. So our whole lives should be full 
of acts of worship. Our life should be declarations of our faith in God's incredible mercy. But as I said earlier, we often associate the word worship with time with our fellow believers singing praises to God, declaring his goodness, declaring his glory, declaring his provision, declaring his love and declaring his salvation. And I've got two great, great quotes coming up that speak, speak of that. First one is A.W. Tozer. He says, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God, that any man or woman on this earth who is bored or turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. That really is something to consider, isn't it? And then Martin Luther said this. He said, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. The gift of language combined with the gift of song was given to man that he should proclaim the word of God through music. And I must admit, I absolutely love music. If I had my way, I would be continuously listening to music at work, at home, continuously. Um, in fact, when I prepared this sermon, I sat myself away with my airport in listening to worship music. When I practice the sermon this morning, I have worship music on. And this is how I get in the zone. I just love music. I played saxophone for 35 years. I love playing in bands. I'm slowly picking up the guitar. I love strumming chords. I love being able to sing to God. But something that I often consider is, why do we, as a human race, love music so much? No other living being gets music. No other living being gets rhythm, melody, chords, and harmonies. Music's for humans alone. It stirs emotions. Significant physiological pathways are stimulated by music in ways that scientists cannot explain. That's why we sometimes find tears in our eyes when we worship. Have you noticed that so many secular songs are written about love? A study on psychology and music determined that 67% of lyrics in every song written in every decade since the 1960s was somehow about love. And in my personal opinion, I can consider no evolutionary advantage that I can see to getting and loving music. And I wonder if even Charles Darwin could come up with a reason why we would evolve into beings that have music. And my only conclusion, and for me it's an item for clear evidence for existence, of God, is that it has been given to us as a gift by God. That's why the majority of secular songs are written about love, because music was designed and given to us by God to write love songs about Him, and to use music to express our love for and worship of Him. Praise and worship is how we express love. Praise and worship is how we express Adoration. Praise and worship to express admiration and praise and worship to express wonder at God's presence. So, just to bring this to a close, Revelation chapter 19, verse 10 says, Then I fell down at his, and by his, John means the angels' feet, to worship. And then he, the angel, said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant 
with you and your brothers who told all to the testament of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, we must only worship God. God should be the whole focus of our worship, both at church and in our day-to-day lives. So let's just, for one final time, have a look at the vision statement of Church Holds True. We see a church of authentic worshippers. We would declare the greatness of God. We would not be lukewarm in our praise. We will sing passionately. We will pray earnestly. We will listen attentively and surrender ourselves regularly. Worship will be a 24-7 reality. We will look forward to Sunday gatherings with great joy and expectation. So as I, as I closed just now, and as we come to closing the service after I pray, in worship, let's not be lukewarm in our praise as we sing the final few songs. Through it, let's declare the greatness of God. Let's sing passionately as we go uh, this morning and as we go through the coming weeks. And let's worship become a 24-7 reality. Let your life become an act of worship. And let's look forward to the next Sunday when we will gather again to worship him together with great joy and expectation. So let's pray. Yeah, Lord, I just want to thank you for these two gifts. I thank you. I want to thank you for the gift of your word. It's just awesome just to consider the fact that you are God who loves us so much. You've given us the Bible. You've given us your word, your truth to read and just to guide our lives, guide us as a church, guide us as, as, as individuals in what we do, Lord. And I just pray that you help us to hold on to that truth. Help us to hold on to your word as a church and in our day-to-day lives, Lord. Help us to use that as a guide in everything we Lord, just thank you for the gift of worship. Thank you for the gift of music. Thank you that you, you, can, you consider us worthy to be able to turn to you in praise. Thank you that you hear our praise, that you hear our worship, Lord. And I just pray that you help worship to be a, a 24-7 reality in our lives. Help it to be the focus of our lives. Help our lives to be focused on worshiping you in everything we do. And Lord, we're going to turn now to sing to your worship again, Lord. And I just pray that you clear our minds and our hearts of anything that gets in the way of giving us acceptable worship that you deserve, Lord. In Jesus' name.